There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 30, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in North Carolina, Part 2. Last week, I discussed several cases of Indigenous women and girls in the state of North Carolina who have either gone missing over the years or have been found murdered. Some of these cases have been solved, and some have not. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I recommend you do so before listening to today's interview, as it will provide some context to my discussion with Crystal Cavalier Keck, founder of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in North Carolina. Crystal is the co-founder of Seven Directions of Service with her husband. She is a citizen of the Okanichi Band of the Saponi Nation in Burlington, North Carolina. She is the chair of the Environmental Justice Committee for the NAACP, a board member of the Hall River Assembly, and a member of the 2020 Fall Cohort of the Sierra Club's Gender Equity and Environment Program and Women's Earth Alliance Accelerator for Grassroots Women Environmental Leaders. Crystal is currently working on her doctorate at the University of Dayton and dissertation on social justice of missing murdered indigenous women and gas oil pipelines in frontline communities. Crystal is also an expert in her field of strategic intelligence, political campaigns, and public administration. She has conducted training along and around the East Coast on coordinated tribal community response for emergency management through natural, cyber, or man-made disasters. Welcome, Crystal, and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. So that was just a traditional greeting saying, thank you. You know, I'm Okanichi Saponi, and uh, you're welcome here. Thank you so much. Could you give us some background on where you grew up and how you came to be involved in social and environmental justice causes, such as missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the construction of gas oil pipelines in frontline communities? So, yes. So I grew up here in Alamance County, um, a little unincorporated community called Pleasant Grove, which is um, an indigenous community. Uh, we always grew up knowing that we were Native American, uh, but we just didn't talk about it because of the volatile issues of race and racism in the state of North Carolina. And that, that's that been going on since, God, colonization. And uh, I graduated in 1996 and I went to UNC Greensboro, so I moved to Greensboro and became involved in politics and social movements. And then I got married to the military and lived all across the United States. And we lived in different um, military communities, but they were always close to reservations. And so, you know, we would just go and, you know, reach out to people on the reservations and just try to have some sort, some form of uh, sense of community since I wasn't in my community. And then I got stationed in uh, Fort Bragg, and then I got a job 
working in uh, Homeland Security in the Department of Defense in D.C. So I moved up there and then my daughter, she got sick. And so we moved home and uh, I moved back to my community because I always wanted to give back and I wanted to be around my family. And I just really missed living out in the just out in the country. And so I started volunteering with my tribe because I wanted to help them advance. I wanted my children to be involved, to um, understand what it meant to be proud to be Native American, because when I was growing up, you couldn't talk about it. Um, You only, either you were white or black, and they didn't talk about the other things. And, uh, you know, I volunteered with my tribe, and then I became an elected tribal leader, uh, not tribal leader, but tribal councilwoman. And then I found out that there was a pipeline coming through. And so, you know, after talking with my tribe, you know, I resigned from my position because it was much easier for me to advocate as a private citizen than on the tribal council because, you know, being a tribal council representative, you couldn't uh, take different um, positions. And so, you know, I wanted to advocate for the people. So, you know, I was invited to speak in Washington at the Indigenous Peoples Movement. And um, that's where I learned about the term missing murder, Indigenous women. And they started talking about all of these women and girls and people who went, who were murdered or were found murdered. And then some of them were missing. And so, you know, when I came home, this was just really on my mind. And I was working in Hickory at the time, which is two hours from where I live. So one morning I got up, I went to the gas station and I had noticed there was this woman who had, she was just running, right? She was running and screaming. And I was just like, what, what's going on? And, you know, it just kind of bothered me because, you know, you don't know right away. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I found out that she was escaping from her captors. And then that got me thinking like, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy because the only way to get from Roxborough to Haw River is through 49, which is the major highway by my house. And then it just got me thinking like, man, look at all these women that are going missing in North Carolina. Is it a sense of human trafficking? And how long has this been going on? And what about my children? You know, I had two teenage daughters. And so I started looking into um, just missing indigenous women because that is, the you know, I live in an indigenous community. I wanted to know how many women who were native went missing because of the missing murdered movement. And so I started in my local county. And when I just wrote to the police, I just said, well, how many cases of missing people do you have? And they didn't have many. And then I said, well, how many cases of Native American incidents do you have? And out of 200,000 pieces of data going back to 2008, they only had 81 cases of anything that identified Native Americans, whether that was a DUI or an arrest or rape or any type of crime, they only had 81 pieces of information. So I was like, wow, that's that's kind of scary because North, at that time, North Carolina was the largest uh, tribal population east of the Mississippi. And I was just like, that, that's kind of insane. And you have a Native American tribe in your county. So that just makes me think that the data is skewed. And so I started looking into it and I started going to different communities. And then I found out about three cases um, in Robinson County or Robinson County, which was 
um, Rhonda Jones, Megan Oxidine, and Christina Bennett. And those three cases are unsolved murders. And they didn't even classify them as murders. They classified them as suspicious deaths. And so I met with the families of those women to just try to learn about those cases. Because, um, again, I was just like, wow, this is crazy. You know, what is going on? And then, you know, I, I had knew about Faith Hedgepath in Chapel Hill. And those were the four cases that I knew of. But as I started to go to Robinson County and, and look at the uh, community, there were a lot more women who were missing and not a lot of people outside of Robeson County or the, the Lumbee area knew that those women were missing. So then I started to just deep dive deep in and I started to ask around to the different tribal communities like up at the Eastern Band of Cherokee and the Kuala Boundary. There were two cases that I knew of that I had researched, but then there were um we just learned that there was 50 more cases that, you know, we didn't even know about because of the media didn't cover it. Like mainstream media didn't cover it. Um, unless you knew someone in the community, you wouldn't know. And so that's, that's how I got involved. And then with these pipelines coming through here on the East coast, um, it just looked a lot different from out West because, you know, here on the East coast, we were first contact jobs. We don't have reservations like out West, you know, our people were acculturated and assimilated. And so, you know, our people look a lot different of what mainstream media makes Native Americans to be. And so they kind of genocided us out. So there's people here in North Carolina that don't even believe that Native Americans exist in, in this state. And, you know, that goes back to education, what people learn in school. Like when I was growing up in school, they didn't talk about my tribe. They talked about the Cherokee and then the people on the coast who were extinct, like the lost colony. And everybody else in between was was murdered or, you know, died out. And so, um, I mean, it's just a real education that people need to understand what's happening. So I hope that answered your question. No, it answered it perfectly. Thank you so much for all that background. So what exactly is the, mis the mission of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls of North Carolina? Obviously, you helped found it. What are you mm -hmm. hoping to achieve with this nonprofit? So I did found Missing, the MMIW um, Coalition. It was uh, actually started, we had a march first, and it was two other women that helped me put together this march, um, Chastity Hunt and Ramona Big Eagle. And we just came up with this idea of trying to bring unity in the state. And what way could we bring unity, but then to rally around this social justice movement of missing women. And that went, the first rally was in 2018, no, 2019, and it was really successful. So after that, you know, I was like, should I have another rally or should I build a, a, a movement or should I build a, a board? And what I did was um, I got together 12 people, men and women and two spirits to be on our board. And we came up with the mission to build a strong foundation for healing, justice and reconciliation for the government's local state and tribal institutions and the community to, in order to help the society's attitudes and the understanding of the issue, because it goes back to education. Um, and we want to provide united tribal leadership 
in this work by lifting up the collective voices of grassroots advocates in tribal communities. So we know that we have elected leaders, right? Because um, again, we're following a colonized mindset of a, a government and we, our tribal leaders or tribal governments mirror that type of government. But you also have to work together with your traditional leaders and your grassroots leaders. And so I feel that having three pieces of that triangle working together, will it be able to um, bring our missing home and help the families of the murdered understand and cope through the process of grief with that? So that's the reason. So we, we were talking earlier about Faith Hedgepath. Um, she was a student at UNC Chapel Hill. She was murdered in a friend's apartment in September of 2012. And this past week, um, the Chapel Hill Police Department announced they had made an arrest in her murder. Unlike many other cases, Faith's murder seemed to attract a lot of national interest and attention from the media. What do you think contributed to that? I believe it was her family, her community. They kept her name relevant, right? They always spoke about it. They had um, Charlie Lowry. She did a, a video about it, Hometown Hero. Um, and also, you know, people just kept uplifting her name and they kept, you know, asking, like, have you seen who did this? And people kept sharing. Um, I think someone came out with a DNA profile or this is what the killer looked like. And so people just kept sharing that information. And so, um, you know, it, it garnered a lot of, I know from my perspective um, on my Facebook, you know, it was very um, on people's minds and everywhere we go, we try to uplift and highlight these cases and say like, you know, have you, you know, do you know anything about this? Um, I think her family, um, you know, it's very difficult for them, but they did a, they did a scholarship committee and they raise money for a scholarship. And, you know, that keeps her picture relevant. You know, that keeps people, it keeps it on the, the front of your mind. And so I really think that's what helped garner the national attention. And then, you know, she was in Chapel Hill, you know, Chapel Hill. That's a, like a, what, top tier, number one public Ivy League school, you know? So that, I mean, that helped too, the location. Um. So I really do think that, and, you know, since it's, it's a, now it's an active investigation going on, you know, I don't want to speak too much about it because I don't want to, you know, unseemingly do some damage to the case. But um, I really think that just people highlighting it helped keep it in the mainstream media. So then you would encourage families to do exactly what her family did if they have yep. a missing or murdered loved one, mm -hmm. um, like no matter who they are. Yeah, like I know with um, Rhonda Jones, Ms. Sheila Price, she, she is, you know, the best advocate for her daughter, Rhonda. Miss um, Sheila is always posting about Rhonda. You know, you know, have you seen her? She's sharing the FBI reward money. Um, and, you know, they're keeping it relevant and they're keeping it in the news. Like every time Miss uh, Sheila goes out and talks, you know, she talks about Rhonda. They have walks down in Robeson County and you know, they always have pictures up. And so, you know, we try to help direct uh, media to her so she can get her voice out there on behalf of Rhonda and, and you know, Ms. Sheila's family. Yeah, I think she's been doing a good job with that. Just between 
just between us here, do you think that that those three cases are possibly all connected? The the cases of Christina I Bennett, do. Rhonda Jones, and Megan Oxendine? You do? I believe that they're connected. I do. Um, that's just by the how close together they were. Um, the violent method that they were found. Um, and then they all knew each other. I really do believe that. Um, and I believe that there's people that know what happened to all three of these women. Like um, with Megan, you know, she was on the news giving an interview about Christina and Rhonda. And, you know, she ended up, you know, found murdered, you know, a couple of weeks later. And I'm pretty sure she knew. There's other people who know who did that. Um, and they murdered Megan for that because she was standing up. And uh, yeah, I think they're connected. And I really think that, um, I don't think, I don't, I'm not going to tell you what I think because I don't want to get into slander, but um, I think that the police know more than what they're letting on. And I think that there's some type of um, involvement, right? Like I really think it's a cover up because there's okay. things like, um, in one of the cases, I can't remember, I think it might be um, Christina's case, that there was a blanket that the body was wrapped in and that blanket was thrown out. And that's on the uh, autopsy report. So like, I don't know, like, you know, why would you throw a blanket out that had DNA on it or something? You know, like, that's crazy. Like, why would you do that? Lost evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. Those are three very interesting cases. I'm gonna do a little bit more um, in this episode. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the details of those cases too. So thank you for addressing that. Mm -hmm. So your organization has created and maintained a comprehensive database with data and information about missing and murdered people in Native American communities. Why did you feel a separate database created for this? So I believe that a separate database is needed to be created one because there's no database that tracks it. There's no database at all that tracks Native American people who have been murdered in the state of North Carolina. There is a NamUs database, but that's housed, I think, in Texas somewhere. And when I reached out to the State Bureau of Investigator, I, I talked to this one gentleman who was the he was in the SBI lead for human trafficking, but he's since retired. And, you know, I was asking him, like, um, why is there not a database? And he was like, well, there's a database. And when I looked at it, it wasn't up to date. It was input by the counties and the, they input the information and it's not real time information. You know, it lags. If they feel like doing it, they can. It's just not like instant, right? Because, you know, when you're having to uh, do st statistics and data analysis, you want real-time information and, you know, two or three years old data, that's, that's just not really good. But a database for that, I just feel that it helps our tribal communities. One, because we are Native American. We've been erased for so long and paper genocided out that we need to be relevant and back in the forefront of things. Um, you know, they have statistics on uh, Asians, whites and blacks and Hispanics, but they don't have data on us. Um, and that's the one thing that I've noticed throughout the whole country is they don't have comprehensive data about this. They have estimates, 
but you, you can't make hard facts fall on estimates. Um, also, the, the education level about it and, you know, I, I, I can't even tell you why they don't do that. They don't even track. Um, I, I tell you one thing. So misclassification is a huge problem. So you're either classified as white, black or Hispanic, according to the police. And so that was one of the disparities that I found here that they labeled people wrong. Um, and just a personal example, my mom and I went to the police. So I went to the police station first to get fingerprints for a job that I had to complete. So the guy didn't ask me what my race was at that time. Um, I had jet black hair. It was in the winter, so I was lighter. And he classified me as white. And I was like, well, how did he do that? Like, for sure, I don't have white features, but okay. So then a couple of weeks later, now my mom is lighter than me and her hair texture is different. It's, it's straight and fine. He classified her as black and it's because she just had a large nose. And I was like, I just asked him, like, how'd you come up with that? Like, you didn't look at her license. You didn't ask us, none of that stuff. How'd you come up with that? And he just was said it was just what he thought. And it just got me thinking like, well, that's crazy. So I went to um, the Mabin police and I spoke to the Mabin police chief and I asked him, like, is there a standard operating procedure that you guys follow for how you classify people? And he said, no. And it's um, they follow like the North Carolina General Assembly or like a statewide standard operating procedure. And there's no procedure about how to classify people without asking them. And sometimes they just don't want to ask you. They just rather guess or assume. And so with that, um, can you imagine finding like a, a Jane Doe on the side of the road and she doesn't have a license and you're misclassifying her because what um, a light-skinned person or a, you know, a light-skinned person looks like to you may be something totally different to somebody else. And that just keeps people from not being able to find their loved ones. So I think classifying people properly and then um, just highlighting the fact that they, you know, classify um, white people in the in the database. So, yeah, it's very subjective. Um, that reminds me of that case. And I think it was out in Mebane of that little boy that was found deceased under a billboard mm -hmm. and he was unidentified for many, many years. They thought he was Hispanic. Yeah. And it turned out he was Asian. Yeah. And they didn't even connect that his mother had been found in South Carolina. I think she might have been classified as something else. So that kept them from being identified for many, many, many years because they were Jane and they were Jane Doe's. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very subjective. It, it's a problem. I understand yeah. that. Um, I personally am Hispanic, but my daughter has blonde hair and green eyes so we we are constantly having these discussions where she's like I don't know how to classify myself <laughs> because my mother is Hispanic but my father wasn't and it's yeah. you know if, if someone didn't know how to identify me or her it could right. cause all kinds of confusion right it's 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 difficult and you know it's just a lot of just miseducation so it goes into stereotypes right so a lot of people here in North Carolina see these Hollywoodized 
versions of Native Americans. And that's going back, even when I was a kid, you know, like the only thing we had to look up to on TV was um, logos for like baseball teams or football teams or the Lone Ranger, you know, just Hollywoodized Native Americans. And, you know, not all Native Americans look like there's different tribes. You have tribes that are at the northern border and ones at the southern border and they all look very different like a lot of um tribes out west southwest like close to the, the Diné, um they are often misclassified as hispanic when they're actually Diné. so um it, you know it just it's just hard and people just rather assume or make these racial profiles when you be like no you're way off on left field so yeah so how can people enter a missing loved one into the database that you all have so on our website mmiwnc.com we have a um we just have a database and you just put your information in there you can report anonymously or you can put list your name if you list your name then you know someone will call you back we have it um all these forms or pieces of information that you can fill out. You can also upload a um, photo. And we also have like tribal nation region um, in their tribal nation. So if they are part of a tribe of North Carolina that they know they can list it there because that can help us, you know, alert our tribal communities that someone is missing in their area. Um, for example, I, I'm not quite sure. I haven't checked this morning, but as of yesterday, there were two Native women that I knew that were missing. One was from Greensboro. Her name is, um, I can't, her name is Hunt. I have to look it up. And then the second young woman was, was from Robeson County. So I can look that up and give that information to you. But um, they put all the information in there and then they put individual's information. And the person who helped us, she was a Native that designed this form was um, Sandra Hope from Stolen Native. And she helped us collaborate to put this form together. Um, so that helps us because this way we can put that information in there and then it'll go to our database. And then we share that with um, police and we also share it with our tribal partners. Um, oh, that's great. So it's not, just, it's not just sitting there in your database, like you're actually getting it out there and disseminating the information. Right. Yeah. And we're actually forming um, a search and rescue team because what we've noticed is that, you know, sometimes the family, sometimes police just give up. So I will honestly tell you, police, I don't know what it is, but when a person goes missing and even when I ask the State Bureau of Investigator, like, you know, if a person goes missing and a family is like, hey, our adult sister is missing, you know, what are the protocols? And the guy was like, well, you know, sometimes they just want to be left alone. And sometimes they just leave and they don't want to tell nobody where they're going. And I'm just like, but if it's not in their characteristics, you know, like, why would you tell someone that give it a while? But, you know, the first, what, few hours of a person that's missing is the most crucial. So why would you tell a person that's like, well, maybe they don't want to be found. That's, that's, that's not comforting to a family. And so, um, you know, I mean, in those rare instances there, you know, is a time that people just want to go off the grid, but um, that's just, you know, it's just hard on a family, especially if that's not in your nature to disappear. Um, 
And or so, if you know they, yeah, or if you know they've been involved with a partner who may not have been treating them very well. Um, yeah, I think there are a number of factors you have to consider in a case like that. Right. But um, I've heard from a lot of family that, you know, the police aren't that helpful, right? Like they might pull them off or especially if it's, um, I like to say like if there's women who are not cute or what society deems is pretty um, or they have a, a nice job, you know, like maybe they're a sex worker, um, society tends to look down on it and then they don't value them the same. And it, it's just, it's just horrible because we're all humans and we, people tend to lose that humanity when people are, you know, poor, they don't look at them at the same, you know, they just look at them as less than everybody deserves to be, you know, happy found, you know? So I don't know. It's just, um, it's, it's really hard and it's always trying to educate people about that. And I always get the question like, well, why are you focused so much on missing indigenous women? And I'm like, well, when there's a person or a race of people who have been invisible for the last 500 years, when you can raise that visibility to just say the mainstream white person, you raise the invisibility of this group to the same, we raise up all women because now all women are seen as equal. But um, again, it's a lot of um, stereotypes, a lot of um, Halloween is coming up. So a lot of women dress up as like the Pocahontas or Pocahontas. That again, that is um, fantasizing and sexualizing women, especially native women, because now you, you have some of these men who just think that uh, native women are exotic and then they can view them as less than, and then they do all sorts of horrible things to them. Like there were two women that were, um, raped and murdered in a hotel room in uh it was I think it was in Kentucky and then uh, they just fetishize those women and you just you know it's, it's just horrible so I always try to educate people about like hey let's not uh wear you know regalia or you know try to make a race sexy because you know people some people are just I don't know sick Yep, they can give people ideas they don't need to get, right? Mm -hmm. So how can people support your organization? Um, they can volunteer. You can um, reach out to us, like any way they want to do, like volunteering. Um, maybe have us come and talk to your community about Indigenous people, especially North Carolina. Um, we're starting a self-defense class if anyone wants to help um, lead those. Um, or give advice um, on how to do self-defense, we'll be glad to do that. They can donate anything. We always accept volunteers and we always like to go out on our communities and talk about um, what's happening, you know, and just keep it, keep it relevant. And then, you know, if we have any um, sleuths out there that want to, you know, look into the social media and see, like what's been provided by the police, maybe investigate, maybe they can see something that we don't see because we're too close to it. Maybe they can see something that's like, hey, have you tried this connection or have you thought about this? Um, I always like these internet sleuths who like to look at these cases and to try to help solve them because 
we need that. We need some people to help connect the dots because, you know, after a while, this kind of wears on you and it wears on the family. Right. I was going to, yeah. I, sometimes I feel like internet sleuths can be a hindrance and sometimes they can be a big help. So <laughs> there's always a fine line there. But I think probably in this case, any sort of interest and um, awareness that we can bring right. to this cause is helpful, right? Right. And I like, feel like that over the past over the past year, year and a half, I've seen more and more awareness come about. Yeah. So I think change is starting to happen. It's kind of a ripple effect, mm -hmm. but I'm very hopeful. Um, it's, it's a similar thing with, with Hispanic women too. I mean, if you think about it, um, so you know, this, this I was, it's so funny. I went and got my nails done and I was talking to this lady at the nail salon and she's, they're not Vietnamese, but they're from Vietnam, but they're the indigenous people of Vietnam. And we were talking about this and, um, she was like, yeah, she was like, we have people go missing in our community almost every week. And I was like, that's amazing because you never hear about it on the news. And this one, it was a man who went missing and he was found murdered, but his car was engulfed in flames. And, you know, you would think that would be, that would make news, but it didn't. And that was in Greensboro. So I don't know. Yeah. It's crazy. Like it's a, it's crazy. The amount of human trafficking that is happening, sex trafficking that is happening and how it's all tied together. Um, and it's, it's, it's so linked together like I stand back and I see this big picture of I see of how gas oil pipelines any type of big construction projects that brings a lot of men that come from outside places who are away from their home and they're coming into a small rural community or a small town it puts a lot of stress on the police force it puts a lot of stress on the community they say that they're bringing jobs with these big corporations they're not they're just bringing jobs like flaggers that pays like $8 an hour. They're not bringing the, the jobs that you would think that are paying like $30, $40 an hour. And they, these companies say that they're doing that. They're not doing that. Um, and then after the project is done, those jobs go away. So then it's back to the community. And so um, we're trying to build a sense of unity around that and bring back a community. So I don't know if you've felt it, but in the last like I don't know, the last like 10 years, I feel that there's a sense of pull away from community and it's more individualism. And if we can get back to that sense of communities where people are looking out for each other, you know, like knowing who your neighbors are, watching out for each other, um, I feel that maybe we can shift things back. Um, so that's what we're trying to do, just bring awareness and bring unity. Exactly. You know, there. Um, I'm in a community that's, uh, it's a college town. I'm in Davidson, North Carolina. We had an incident where there was a nail salon in town. And one of the women working there had been basically an indentured servant. Um, and because she was undocumented, the owner of the salon was forcing her to do all this labor for free torturing her. I mean, there was some physical abuse going on and people in my community were so shocked when that happened because they thought, oh, this doesn't happen here, but it can happen right in front of you. And I think that the lesson that a lot of us took from that is if you see something going on that you think isn't right. And once, once our police department was alerted to it, they went right in and figured out what was going on, arrested the people involved. 
But mm-hmm. I think it's important to speak out if you see something that you think is not right, especially in a setting like that. The poor woman had been working there for over a year with no pay. It was people had seen her being abused in the salon and hadn't said anything. Wow. It was terrible. Yeah, it was terrible. So I think, you know, one of the other things is that we have to, we have to be willing to, to put ourselves out on the line if we see something that, that is wrong that we don't agree with, that we think needs to be reported because right. you just never know, right? You're exactly right, exactly right. Well, thank you so much for this today, Crystal. I enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed learning more about this. Uh, I think our listeners are really going to appreciate this information and I'm sure there's gonna be some sleuths out there <laughs> that go digging in to see what they can figure out. I know you've also got a list of people that are uh, missing and murdered women on your site too, right? right? That you're trying to bring awareness to their cases. Right. So I encourage people to go on, check that out. They can find us on Facebook too. The pictures on the site are very small, but if, if you okay. look on our Facebook page, it's the same MMIWNC. You can see those pictures a lot bigger um, and it gives you information about their cases and stuff. Okay, I'll link to that site. I'll link, I'll link to the Facebook page in our show notes so that everybody can see that. And um, I think that's all I had today. Great. So I just want to thank you once again. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Crystal Cavalier Keck and the important work the nonprofit she founded is doing in the North Carolina Native American communities. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. Be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are available. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.